This is Climate Justice, y'all, a podcast dedicated to lifting up and centering the climate and environmental justice movement in the South. Despite the South being the most biodiverse, diverse, and one of the largest economic engines in the world, we are underfunded and often barred from the decision-making table. Because of that, we decided to pull up a chair and amplify the stories of communities in the South hit the hardest by the climate crisis. We're using good old-fashioned storytelling to shine a spotlight on these Southern leaders from all walks of life, putting in their blood, sweat, and tears to transform the region. The usage of y'all in the title is on purpose. We are honoring our Southern heritage of creativity, resilience, and ingenuity. All right, y'all, it is season two of Climate Justice Y'all. Let's get started. All right, good afternoon, Dr. Greer. Um, could you introduce yourself and talk about CARES or the Center for American Indian Research and Studies? Okay, so Tammy Greer, um, I'm a tribal member of the United Home Nation and I work at the University of Southern Mississippi and we have a Center for American Indian Research and Studies and I co-direct that center with a friend of mine, Jeannie Gillespie, and we sort of do research, but also outreach into native communities in the Southeast. That's amazing. Could you tell us more about like what the outreach looks like in the Southeast? Uh, Because I don't know about our listeners, but I know for me personally, and probably Marisha, Mm Uh, we didn't have a lot of interaction with indigenous communities growing up. And so what does that outreach look like? Right. So that's kind of typical. Your experience is kind of typical. And it's especially typical in the Southeast because Southeastern natives were, you've heard of the Trail of Tears. Well, we sometimes call it the Trail of Tears, sometimes call it the forced removal. So natives down here were forcibly removed um, from uh, east of the Mississippi to west of the Mississippi to make room for plantations and cotton growers and so in the 1830s. And so we down here, um, the people who stayed, that is, um, had to sort of be quiet and keep to ourselves and lay low and kind of hide in plain sight. Like a lot of our tribal members sit out in like um, woods and swamps and my my tribal members, the Homa, hid out in swamps and, you know, didn't really, um, weren't able to really have a voice in really anything. School, you know, we didn't have schools down here. And then we had schools, but they only went to eighth grade and the public schools wouldn't let us in. <clears throat> and so that history, uh, I guess you'd imagine has a legacy. I mean, you don't don't just do that to a people for a hundred years and then they all appear, you know, they're happy to be them, you know, so uh, it had a legacy. And so down here, the Center for American Indian Research and Studies, we um, elevate our tribal members. So it's like we do, we have powwows and, you know, that's kind of a pan-native thing. And we have um, school days (laughs) that, that... teach like fourth graders who are studying Mississippi history about Native Americans down here. And we bring like friends with us to do that. So it's like when we talk about stickball, we don't only talk about stickball, we play stickball with the kids. And so they get a different experience of uh, Natives down here um, because of our outreach efforts that and I go give talks and, you know, we write grants right now. I told you I am 
Um, I have tribal members on the other side of this wall who have brought their crafts for me to video and tape and, and uh, interview them about their process and all the cool stuff that they can do. And so, you know, like that. That's great to see that y'all are working towards healing a community that's that's had so much just trauma. Yeah, trauma and just a burden of just feeling like White supremacy. Yeah. <laughs> we'll shoot it straight. Right, yeah. right. I was trying to go around it, but yeah. pretty much, yeah. Um, so speaking of that, in today's episode with you, we want to talk about indigenous healing in plants. And we see that you um, teach stats at the University of Southern Mississippi, and you've obviously done a lot of work with CARES. Um, can you talk about the intersectionality of health and um, uh, our relationship with the planet? Well, we... I can study this because, you know, being trained up in statistics, really the idea is you go and work with someone who I do, Jennifer Lamax, who's a nutritionist. You work with someone in a content area and, you know, you bring your stats to the table. And so, and also stats is a way, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this first. Stats is a way of knowing the world, but they're indigenous ways of knowing the world as well. So there are lots of ways of knowing the world and stats is one and research is another. And then, you know, the tribal people who have lived among, you know, on the water, among these plants for, you know, them and then their relatives lived there and then their grandpa lived there and then they know the world too. They know this world very, very, very well. And so what we're, what I do is, or what I can do because of my stats background is I'm able to go into the literature and look to see sort of if what these tribal folks are saying about these plants are, is verified by Western knowledge. So, and I, and I don't depend on it, but it's another way of knowing. So, um, let's see, let's see an example. So, sumac, sumac is putting berries out right now. And native people use sumac for like, um, uh, the flowers, the leaves, the barks, the roots for treatment for sores on your body. Like if you poison your skin, they'll use sumac to, you know, treat your skin like as an astringent. So like if you have, um, you know, uh, um, face things on your face, you know, like uh, pimples on your face or something like that. So that's how natives use sumac as like a sore skin treatment like that. So then you go and you look up sumac and you look to see what sumac has, like the chemistry of sumac and everything. It turns out that sumac has tannic acid. That right there is an astringent. Natives use sumac to prepare cloth for dye. That tannic acid prepares cloth for dye. Um, so it's like I, I, once I see like a lot of uses of something and similar uses and across different tribes, I can go into the literature the Western literature and go, how come that plant does that? I just assume that plant does that. If a lot of tribes are using it similarly and for, then I go into the Western literature and I'm like, how come that plant does that? And usually there's something there that tells me why that plant does that, which is so gratifying, you know, to know that our ancestors, they had their way of knowing the world and they came to some of the same conclusions we can come to with a totally different way of knowing the world. 
Yeah, and that sounds like it's really validating um, to, for at least for you and for others, when it comes to like combining the different ways of knowing, like you were talking about earlier uh, with indigenous knowledge, Western science, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in an earlier conversation we had, we kind of talked about how every plant um, in relationship to others has a healing property. Could you go more into that, please? Well, they have that. Well, okay, so plants are what what's, they stand in the same place, right? Unless we move them pretty much. I mean, they can move in generations. So like if it gets too hot down here, you know, their seeds will start coming up north of here. So they can move like that as a plant community. But individual plants don't move. And so they stay, which is what makes them, I mean, that's a whole nother topic, but which is what makes them, should make them for us partners in this, you know, climate change period we're in right now, because they, that's what they do. They go and they take the land and they stay where they're placed. And so they have a really awesome ability to take back land, to take it back, you know, from the water. They can like, you know, stand their ground anyway. But so, yeah, so because they stand in one place, they have to fight every single fight they have using chemicals like, you know, um, like the tannic acid is a chemical that fights off bacteria, fungus, things like that. And so their medicine, though, the cool thing about that is you would think that because they're plants, their medicine would be good for them and not for us. But the truth of the matter is that antibacterial medicine that they use to fight off that chemical that they use to fight off bacteria and fungus and things like that that would attack them does the same for us. So and, you know, I've heard like all my life, oh, we're all related, meaning plants, animals, uh, the creepy crawlies, the birds that fly, the, you know, all of us are all related. But when you think about that, like their medicine works for us and look at them, how different they are from us, you really understand we're all related, you know? Well, and I think that ties into our uh, Mauritius question earlier about like health disparities in our relationship to the planet, because mm -hmm. like when things are, with, naturally, we can have a very good relationship with each other, with our family members that are plants, animals, and stuff like that. And so, and what's crazy is that climate, Western climate science is just now understanding something that indigenous folks have been saying for thousands of years, you know? And so I really love that. And I, I think there's so much that we can learn from plants. and. That's part of the reason why we invited you on the show, other than uh, our listeners really wanting to hear from you too, of course. But yeah, could you talk more about like, I, and this could be a loaded question, but what do in, what does an indigenous plant mean? And what does indigenous medicine mean, especially for this like Gulf South region? Because the Homa Nation is in Louisiana, I think is what you said. Um, and you live in Mississippi now and we're in Alabama. So what, what does that all mean? And then as a follow-up question, could you talk about the medicine wheel garden that y'all have at your university, which is amazing that a university is doing that. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Um, okay, so indigenous plants and indigenous medicine and the medicine wheel garden, that's what you want me to talk about. 
Yeah, I mean, kind of define what does an indigenous plant mean? What does indigenous medicine mean? And then like, especially native to this region, because, you know, our listeners may not know what any of that terminology means. (laughs) And then after that, could you talk about the medicine wheel? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we have plants down here. Well, this relates to the medicine wheel too, but the plants down here um, that are from this region, um, that's what people would call indigenous plants to this region. So they've they've grown up here. They've been here for thousands of years. Um, They don't need any tender loving care. I mean, this is the most beautiful thing in the world. It's like if you plant with plants that are from here, pretty much you throw them out there you water them twice and you leave them alone and that is the best like uh uh what do you call it prescription for them doing well (laughs) which is pretty cool because what that means is they're totally sustainable they grow here they love it here they'll send their seeds here they'll have thousands of seeds for you to take and use and plant other places they understand their mission (laughs) right here in this space, right? Usually I go back, like I go to the USDA website. I mean, I look in like books that talk about and ask people who know about plants that were here before settlers came and plants that were here before people from, you know, um, different, you know, because not just settlers, it was, you know, a lot of people bring plants into this area. But so those that were here before, you know, in the 1600s, basically, 14, 15, 1600s, when people started writing about them, but they weren't bringing new plants over here, or they were, but we knew which ones they were. Okay, so that indigenous medicine, there's a lot of that now. There's a lot to that because even medicine people, there were different kinds of medicine people. So there were like healers and then there were plant people. And then there were women who um, help people, help women have babies. And, you know, and there were like uh, people who would talk to you about your problems, kind of like we would call psychologists or psychiatrists today. And they were all healers. Um and all equally so healers, you know, but they had different strengths or different knowledge or something like that. So when you think about like even the medicine wheel garden, let's just take just the garden itself is in the shape of a medicine wheel and it has, you know, uh, paths that are in the cardinal directions and it has plants up in there according to where they like to be. So it's like if they like high and dry, they're on one side of the garden. If they like low and wet, they're on the other side of the garden. Um, so the, the, and the thing is, I guess tribal people, a lot of tribal people and a lot of tribal teachings are about how like um, everything's a teaching. I mean, that's the rule. Everything is a teaching. So like, when you walk in that garden, you enter from the east and the east is represented, you know, by the color yellow, because that's where the sun comes up every day. And the east represents new life and birth and all things birth and new friendships. When I got to know you guys, that's a birth that we're in the eastern direction right now because I don't know you that well. So we're in the east and you got to respect that direction because everything starts there. And, you know, just because you haven't developed whatever skill, if you're in the East, you shouldn't have. It's because it's brand new to you. So it's a 
you know, you respect that direction. East is where, you know, you're, this is different teaching for different tribes, like where the direction is. But for us in our garden, the East is the spiritual aspect of yourself. And the East is fire, the fire aspect of the whole universe. And if you think about all what I just said, it's like not just focused on me and it's not even just focused on humans. You know what I mean? It's like taking the big picture and having a teaching that has multiple layers. And and then that's just the East because then you you walk through the garden, you head to the Southern direction and there's a whole nother aspect of yourself, aspect of the universe. There are plants that are represented. There are animals that are represented. I mean, it, it like it, it's, I guess, holistic. I guess that's what I see the difference in, like we in the Western, you know, like me, I'm trained up in statistics and that's pretty much it. But, but you know, there's a whole nother way of approaching training so that it's more universal and can be applied to lots of different things. Um, and I guess that's the difference that I see in training, you know, in the, my Western education and my tribal education, really. The Medicine Well Garden sounds beautiful. Like, I'm, I'm quite sure Abigail would love to visit. I know. I would love to visit. It just sounds like a place where you could go and like just spiritually, spiritually connect to the to nature and just become one and kind of learn some new things. I don't know, it just sounds very nice. It sounds just educational and I would love to visit. Abigail would love to visit. We would love to come. (laughs) Um, So to kind of follow up on what you said, um, so it sounds like indigenous plants are very important. And like, I know this is a lot of new terminology for me. How about you, Abigail? I'm learning, I'm slowly learning. Yeah, yeah, like it just sounds like a lot of of, um, terminology been thrown at us. So can you just go into why indigenous plants are so important and like how are they sustainable and how do they create a sustainable living well um okay i the way i think about it and i don't know about other people but the way i think about it um these are the plants these are the you know the food and the medicine and the drink and the building materials and the weapons and the dyes um that allowed my ancestors to survive. So I would not be here if these plants had not been here. And so as far as I'm concerned, for me anyway, I mean, and the garden is part of this, um, I owe, you know, it's like when they get in danger, um, I need to make sure I'm elevating them. When they get in danger of being overlooked as important and, you know, necessary, it's my job to elevate them. When I get in danger, like my health is in danger, they elevate me, right? They sacrifice their lives for us. Really think about it. When you eat a plant, that plant has sacrificed itself for you. And you have to respect that, you know? So I feel like for me anyway, um, me elevating them is just part of the reciprocity you know it's just part of keeping the balance of everything it's like we do for them they do for us they have done for us for thousands and thousands of years so this garden is about 
us doing for them? Because here's one, because um, even though there's medicine in every single one of them, there's dyes in a bunch of them, because I use those dyes. There's, you know, building materials and tools and weapons and all of what I said in them. Um, people still call, like, let me just give you one example, the Yopon Holly plant. They call that a trash plant, a trash plant, like a trash plant. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> why would you, why that doesn't even, that's kind of like how people call dandelions weeds and they are so good for you. That just kind of, that's insane. Yes. And so, and here's the thing, but, but it's beautiful. The story is beautiful anyway, even though like there's a misunderstanding. Okay. I can relate to it as a Southeastern American Indian person and, you know, having, you know, my ancestors come from Southeastern American Indian people. I can relate to that plant because that plant was totally misunderstood by by European settlers, the people who came in, what they saw is uh, like a ceremony that natives used to use, which is they would drink that plant, drink Yopan Holly, which by the way, has caffeine in the leaves. The only really viable source of caffeine in any plant in North America, akin to Yerba Mate from South America, it's its North American counterpart only grows along the coast, was traded all over North America by Southeastern natives because of that caffeine, you know, like a morning pick-me-up and all. Okay, so that plant right there uh, got named by whoever names these plants, um, Ilex vomitoria, because they saw natives ingesting tea made from that plant, sometimes with other things in there, but sometimes just a really strong version of the tea um, a bitter version of the tea, which that plant's not usually bitter, but if you cook it long enough, it'll it'll turn bitter because of the tannic acid again. Um, but they would ingest that ilex, they would ingest that tea and purge themselves, purposefully purge themselves, not accidentally purge themselves. They would ingest enough tea to purge themselves, and they would as a as a like a ceremonial thing where they were cleansing the inside of themselves and they would bathe in the river to cleanse the outside of themselves making and this is beautiful making themselves pure inside and out pure inside and out for whatever negotiation was going to come up and or whatever fight or whatever war or whatever was coming their way um, as a ceremony and and if you think about that, you know, the Europeans saw that. And of course, they misunderstood that, like they misunderstood a lot of what South, like they called, you know, native savages and things. They misunderstood a lot of what was going on. Also, they misunderstood that plant. That plant got a bad name, <laughs> Ilex vomitoria, which it does not make you vomit. I can drink it every day of my life. I do drink it a lot. I never have vomited. But look, and then they quit, then people quit using it and quit, you know, selling it and quit. And now it's called a trash plant. Can you imagine? Think on that. It was a ceremonial. Oh, and not only ceremonial, like, you know, in that it had caffeine and also it, it could let you purge if you wanted to purge. But also it has uh, in native cultures, a lot of native cultures. And down here, four is like a... Um, a sacred number 
So three like is a sacred number. It means balance and four is like completeness. Okay. It has four um, petals that face in opposite, like, like the cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, you know, they're lined up across from each other, four petals, uh, four seeds, four seeds inside of one ovary, four sepals, four, I mean, it's just like got all the, all the like uh, sacredness to it that you can imagine. And also it was a ceremonial drink and also it had caffeine in the leaves. And now, you know, now people look at it and go, yeah, I mean, they'll run their bulldozer over it in a minute. And so bringing back to this, the, like, just the, you know, bringing back that plant as, as an important plant and a awesome plant and a useful plant. And it's like, I feel like I'm doing the same with natives down here when we have these outreach events and all it's like there's beautiful stuff and sacred stuff and useful stuff and we just you know have not explored that really well at all so yeah i am blown away what was the plant called again yopan holly ilex vomitorium Interesting. I'm definitely going to look into that more. For sure. Can you put the name in the chat? <laughs> yeah, we'll share it. We'll share it in the podcast like promotion as well because this okay. plant deserves some love for sure. Yes, yes. Not a trash plant. No, it's not a trash plant. That's no. rude. And the thing is, it's heartbreaking the cultural misunderstandings yeah. between the colonizers slash settlers and indigenous people and indigenous plants. And it's like I. I'm so glad that you're talking to us today, Dr. Greer, because I've already learned a lot. I, yeah, for yeah. sure. And have you written a book or anything like that about this kind of stuff? Because if you haven't, you should. Sure, <laughs> and we want one. Yes. <laughs> I want you to come visit the garden. I yes. love the garden. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But, you know, after hundreds of years of heartbreak and everything, it seems like some people are finally beginning to realize that like indigenous conservation, indigenous farming methods, indigenous plants, indigenous animals are all, like you were saying earlier, climate resilient and they work with the planet rather than against it. Um, yeah, and it's sustainable living like Marisha just said. And so as a member of the Homa Nation, and please correct me if I'm mispronouncing that, what are some lessons that people could learn from y'all's culture? Oh, oh. So we have fishermen down here and we have, um, oh, we have, okay, I know one, we have fishermen down here. We have people who make palmetto huts down here. We have above ground oven makers down here. We have people who make dolls out of moss that you used to used to stuff beds with and all. I mean, we have some people down here who understand the environment in ways that everybody needs to understand the environment. So let's think. Yeah, sorry, that's like a super loaded yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, we <laughs> yeah, I think what we need, I think some of the things that I've seen and growing up, you know, around people who fished and all of that, too. But one of the things that I see that's a big difference and a big lesson that maybe people could take away from indigenous people down here, you never see or, you know, we haven't had this happen over several hundred years of us living down here. Um, people trying to dominate the environment 
like you would never go into a the woods and just clear cut it. You just wouldn't do that. Um, that that to me is like a domination paradigm. It's like let me go in there with big equipment and just like lay flat anything that doesn't interest me and anything in my way. Um, you know, if I want to, you know, um, get some dirt for my house, I'm gonna go dig a pit. I'm not gonna worry about what happens to the pit. Doesn't even matter because it's on somebody else's property. That pit's gonna fill up with mosquitoes. It's gonna, you know, give people diseases, but this is not my problem because I want the dirt, it's their property, I'll buy it, and it doesn't matter what happens to them. You don't see that kind of like wholesale disregard of what is gonna happen in 5, 10, 15, 20, 70, 170 years um, from like traditional people because they're thinking about their relatives in the future, just like they think about their relatives in the past, you know, and we don't want you to move those bones either because those are our relatives and we want them to lay resting there and stay there because they're attached to that place. They're, you know, that's their space and leave them alone. And the same way in the future, it's like we want for this bayou to be here in the future so that, you know, our kids, 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 kids to seven generations out can use this bayou and fish and hunt and get their food from here. So you don't wholesale damage things, you know, in that way. There's a working, there's more like, okay, so that's a domination paradigm where you go in and you, you know, you just close the bayou down if you feel like it, or if you need something, or if there's a resource you want, you just shut everything else down and take what you want from that, like oil. I don't see that paradigm. And I guess that's the biggest difference I see. I see more of a paradigm of what's called, what I call um, co-creation. So it's like, you know, the, the squirrels and the muskrats and the otters and the, the river does what they want to do. And let me see how I can fit in this situation and get what I need out of it. I'm going to have to hunt. Animals are going to sacrifice themselves for me. I'm going to eat the plants. Plants are going to sacrifice themselves for me, but I'm not going to do too much, do more than I need to, to make that happen. I, I have to have food. And there's even a, you know, there's even like a tradition of apologizing to the animal when you kill it for food. And, you know, the apology goes something like, I'm really sorry I had to do this, but me and my family, we need food. You know, I mean, think about that. It's like, and if you feel that like honor towards that respect and that like, oh, I don't want to hurt. I don't, I really don't want to hurt you, but I have to have food. You're not going to hurt a lot of things because you, you know, you'd feel horrible about it if you did. So you hurt as little as possible and you disrupt as little as possible, especially if you don't understand it yet. You tread very lightly until you kind of understand the whole cycle and what's going to happen if you dam up that river. Watch the beavers. They'll dam it up for you, see what happens, and then go see if you want to do that too. You know, watch the beavers. They'll show you what's going to happen when you dam that bayou up.
And then you might not want to do that because maybe that, you know, leaves your relatives down the bayou without any water and without any fish to eat. And that's a whole nother paradigm compared to what we're used to seeing um, with our big machines and the whole drilling and, you know, making a canal that goes straight out without considering you know what that that salt water is going to come back on us and kill the plants and then erode and we're going to get ourselves into a mess and i think the people down here would have told you that if you would have asked it sounds like first of all um there are so many lessons that we could take from that For but sure. some key takeaways i got was like one we need to learn from indigenous folks how to truly respect each other and the other beings in our ecosystem and to work with things rather than against them like it doesn't make any sense to for example like okay so for example birmingham is built in this bowl essentially compared to like the surrounding area because we're the bottom we're at the bottom of the appalachian foothills and we're experiencing a lot of flooding now Mm -hmm. and i can imagine that if we had asked people while they were building Birmingham to be like, hey, what's take the weather like here? Right. You know, like <laughs> take in the infrastructure. Take in the already existing infrastructure yeah. and beings here and work with that. And so thank you so, so much for highlighting all of that, Dr. Sure, Greer. Sure. We definitely needed that. Um, before we end off, although we would love to keep learning from you, like it's, it's about that time. We gotta wrap it up. We gotta wrap it up. <laughs> um, Dr. Tammy, uh, T- Tammy Greer, we would just love to, um, just love, 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 love that you came on here and spoke with us and gave us a couple of lessons, a lot of lessons and a lot of knowledge to take home with us. But before we let you go, we wanna ask you a quick question. Um, What gives you hope to keep going, to keep fighting, to keep helping those around you, to keep um, pushing for sustainable living? What gives you hope? Well, I mean, you guys are asking about it. You're young and you're asking about it. That's like hopeful, right? That's like, oh my gosh, there's some kids out there who want to know. I mean, that gives me hope. We have tribal um, youth who want to know about these, you know, basket making and palmetto. That gives me hope um, that I can stand in the middle of two really different worlds and sort of bridge that gap and that I haven't gotten fired from my job or kicked out of my tribe, that gives me hope. So, like that. That's great. Thank you. You're very welcome.